Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome, everybody, to this Motorsport Magazine podcast in association with Mercedes-Benz. What do you think of when someone says the word used, old-fashioned, out of tune, a bit scratched, something past its best? Chances are you're not thinking of a Mercedes-Benz, and certainly not one of the latest models. Think Mercedes-Benz approved used, Suddenly, there's a lot more meaning to that little word. Visit your local retailer to find your used car today, and you'll see what I mean. I like the way you work Mercedes-Benz approved used. Used, but not what you're used to. Now, this is a very special podcast because we have Matt and Steve Neal. Now, if you follow motor racing in the UK, you'll be aware of the British Touring Car Championship and no doubt you'll be aware of Matt and Steve Neal. Matt is a three-time champion and Steve has won, run one of the most successful uh, teams in British Touring Car Racing for, for, for many, many years. But from an international scale, from our international listeners... Let's try and give some context about the British Touring Car Championship. What, what is it, Simon? I'm here with Simon Aaron, who's our features editor and digital editor, uh, Jack Phillips. But Simon, the British Touring Car Championship, tell our international listeners all about it. Uh, due to my age, I still tend to call it the British Saloon Car Championship because that's what it was when I was growing up. But it's, um, it's the foremost motor racing championship in the UK nowadays when we no longer have a, you know, a national Formula One or Formula 5000 championship as we did too many moons ago. And since it was reborn as the British Touring Car Championship in the mid-1980s, it has grown and grown and grown. Its profile in the UK and throughout Europe is, is huge. All the races are televised. Instead of getting one, day to ra- one race a day, we now have three races a day. And it's cultivated some fantastic competition between top-level drivers, as well as guys like Matt, who've been winning 25, 26 years. You've been doing it now, Matt? Something of that order, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, a long time. Um, but, I mean, <clears throat> as well as some great, talented homespun drivers, we've had some top international talent. Alan yeah. Menu, uh, Ricard Rydell, Ivan Muller, Gabriele Tarkini. Some guys with real high-quality racing pedigree behind them. So it's, um, you know, it is, uh, it's a Sunday afternoon televised staple in the UK nowadays, which it never was yeah. back in the day. And... Um, you know, it's, uh, as I say, it, it's the best attended in terms of spectator numbers uh, a four, yeah, four-wheel championship we have in this UK by a long way. And of course, what we have with, with you guys, um, Matt, Matt and Steve, is um, we have a very much a family effort here. As, as I say, Steve, you've, you've run the team for, for many, many years. And, and Matt, you've mostly driven for, for Team Dynamics in, in your touring car career with, with a, the odd foray into to other teams as well. Um, 
why why do you stick with the British Touring Car Championship? Let's let's open with that one. You've you've been racing in the championship since '93, I think that's right. Why do you stick with the British Touring Car Championship? I think as a commercial platform, you know, we have looked at other championships and we we wanted to go World Championship and we've done things like Bathurst and stuff and gone over there and we'd love to do World Touring Cars or whatever. But as a commercial platform, it stacks up, you know, yeah. with the TV and the coverage and the media coverage. Uh, you know, if you're going out to sponsors, which we do all the time, yeah, um, and trying to justify the investment they're putting in, there's nothing can nothing compete with it. it on a national level or on an international level, unless you've got a manufacturer, a major manufacturer behind you. So, um, yeah. you know, we're lucky we've had a relationship with Honda uh, yeah. the last 10 years in it, but it's uh, it's UK based, but it's got a global reach. Okay. Steve, I'm going to take you back to um, a, a circuit that Simon knows well. I'm going to take you back to Alton Park. Um, can you remember what you were doing on 18th of September, 1965 at Alton Park? I was born about nine months later. So. <laughs> <laughs> when I wrote that down, I was thinking, I want 66 you were born, yeah. right? Okay. It was a pretty good result. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, it, um, it, it's a, when we had the first of the cross flow eight port heads yeah and uh, we made our own along with a company called Arden Racing and Jim Whitehouse who was a brilliant engineer yeah he he would cast his own cylinders you know and that's uh, mind you you had to put a lot of mustard and bars <laughs> bars leak into them to stop, stop them leaking, leaking. <laughs> but uh, yeah it gave the rest of the world a bit of a shock in the, in the yeah. mini back it's yeah it was at the height of mini sort of fame wasn't it with yeah. the our current uh, BRDC chairman, um, yeah. Paddy, winning uh, the winning the biggest rally in the world, which yeah. was a great thing for him, and uh, it was it cottoned on all over. Yeah, well, I mean, that's th this was the Gold Cup, and as you say, this was the height of the mini success, and of course, you you were a very very successful min mini racer. Um, now, I, I managed to find the uh, the the grid. Um, for, for this race, um, and we these these were the names: so um, Brabham, Clark, Sears, Rhodes, Chris Craft, Frank Gardner, John Fitzpatrick, and yourself. What what an extraordinary group of drivers! And I was about to say Rose Gallery, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> you probably know more, but, but that that must have been actually was that quite intimidating to, to have those drivers that of that caliber international drivers at the gold cup at Alton, Alton park and there you are with right. the mini <laughs> uh, it would have been if i'd been in front of them i guess but no those guys are up and gone you know yeah, but sure. the people like jack and he was in a mustang wasn't he at that yes time? the yellow man car i think it was yeah uh, yeah, yeah. Which are a good car, yeah. and the Works Lotuses were there, which yeah. was uh, spectacular as well. Yeah. So there, there was a bunch of them fighting up the front end for the overall victory, and then you yeah. get a group of us tailenders who were fighting and squabbling amongst each ourselves, <laughs> and <laughs> seeing who's going to come out with top mini. That was important, really, yeah. because top mini, you got paid to drive them in those days, sure. and you got uh, if you were a privateer, you got start money as well. So yeah. Nothing like today. The, yeah. So you're saying you don't pay Matt to drive today then? <laughs> well, I, he gets pocket money, not stuff. <laughs> That's, he passes that on down to his two boys. <laughs> of course, yeah, there, there's a third generation racing there as well. We'll, we'll, yeah. we'll come back to that. Um, so, so that time, this was the height of the, the Mini success. Um, tell me the technique required to get the most out of a racing Mini in the 60s, because of course, 
the racing minis that we see today, maybe at Goodwood or elsewhere, highly evolved cars, the cars that you drove, not so evolved, different tyres, what, what were they like to, to race? Pretty basic, really. There was, uh, initially, there were no seatbelts, there were no roll cages, there were um, very limited restrictions on uh, overalls of no mix. The, mm. You were unusual if you wore a face mask at all, you know, across right. the mouth and nose. Um, and it was pretty pointless anyway because it was no bigger than a handkerchief. <laughs> <laughs> and in the very early days, of course, we had those blue overalls, which yes. you were supposed to wash in soda or something like that to make the fire resistance. <laughs> if you dropped a cigarette, you'd be all right. <laughs> but uh, not very good at that sort of stuff. But yeah. it was intriguing. So you, you also had a really crummy seat. That it was right. like a little fiberglass bucket with no trim on it or anything like that. Yeah. And uh, we used to use that or take advantage of being without belts by leaning into the corners like a motorcyclist. Really? So if you look at some of the old photographs and the drivers are over here. Yeah, yeah. Leaning on the corner. And was, was that just simply to try and hang on to the thing or was it to try and actually create yeah, and sort well, of <laughs> change we, the... <laughs> we did have big steering wheels. Yeah. You know, there was a lot of caster on those little things. Yeah. And, um, and the tow the offsets on the wheels was increased to try and widen the track. Yeah. And that really did cause a few problems with hanging on to it. But yeah. it worked. Absolutely. It did, yeah. So I wonder if you would mind um, give, giving us um, and our listeners some of your, your standout races, maybe the ones that, that you, where you had some real success or ones you simply enjoyed. Give, it, give us an idea of wow. your highlights. <laughs> <laughs> I think one that I really enjoyed was the Silverstone uh, in 1960. Seven, that was um, a Grand Prix support race, wow. and it was a head-to-head -head with uh, myself and John Rhodes, who's yeah. big pal of mine. He rang me last night. Did he? Did he? So. Thanks. <laughs> and uh, it was it was nip and tuck all the way, all the way. Yeah. He got some new fancy tyres from Dunlop, which were the nearest thing to a slick, and I was still on the old green spots, which was <laughs> the rain tyre. So. Uh, uh, the, the advantage I had in speed was definitely counted out by the advantage he had around the corners. Oh, right. And John was a pretty brave guy as well. So he'd throw a car at the corner at 130 mile an hour just by doing a rally tick with flicking it one way and then throwing it the other, let it slide in and scrub the power off. Yeah. Um, but that was a satisfying win. It was half a length over the line at Silverstone after something like 10 or 15 laps. And, wow. Hmm. Fantastic. Do, do, you have, um, do you have a kind of a technique? Can you describe the way you drive? Were, were you smooth and fast? Were you um, flamboyant? And then I wonder whether there's a, a genetic link to the way you guys drive. Is it something you've discussed? Um, well, it depends who your teammate is, you know. <laughs> if you and your teammate get on okay, then that's, yeah. that's fine. But if you've got a teammate who's a little bit selfish, then, <laughs> then things can get nasty yeah. just between the two of you. Yeah. But principally, my job and I enjoyed doing was supporting John because John was a brilliant driver. I think, yeah. you know, if you're going to counter these guys, he, John Rhodes was one of the only world-famous mini-drivers, apart from Paddy Hopkirk. Yes, yeah. And um, so I used to look after him, and John Fitzpatrick and Chris Craft. Uh, Chris Craft was the 
the, the naughty one and I was the naughty one he was a naughty one in the Fords and I was the naughty one in the Minis and so we used to battle each other because Chris was out there to sort of deal with the, John yeah and um I was out there to deal with them, so, <laughs> which so that was a, an issue. Yeah, so yeah. Yeah, it, it was quite physical. Yeah. So when people say that uh, driving standards have sort of diminished in the in the modern age, in fact, it's nothing new at all. Uh, no, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> so Matt, let, let's talk about um, your earliest motoring memories. Then um, I, I know that competitively you started out on on motocross bikes but let, let's talk about Matt Neal growing up and, and being surrounded by cars and, and the industry itself uh, yeah I, I guess I never raced until I was 17 and that was on a motocross bike one of my first cars um, I remember I found a car and it's before internet or anything you know so we found a car in the back of the newspaper or somewhere a golf which I fell in love with and did, uh, rang the guy and arranged to do a deal with him and I'd saved up some money and all the rest of it. And then my dad gave me a lift there and we, it was a typical do a deal on the car park. And he gave me a lift and we, we bought this car and I'm following him back and he's in his, in his BMW and I'm following him back in the Gulf. We come off this island, someone steps into the road, he slams the brakes. I don't see the person stepping <laughs> off the road. And I pile in the back of him and bury this golf deep into the back of his pride BMW. And then one of the Awkward. most disturbing moments is I can I remember looking at him and he's on the sidewalk. He's got out of his car and he's beating his head on the pavement. <laughs> and um I suppose it was then I knew I was destined for a career in doing <laughs> cars after that. Um it was uh it was what it's one I've never forgotten really yeah and that was that was your first road car was it and last <laughs> it wasn't my first road car I was about two in by then right. I got rid of another two before that um, okay um, but it was uh, it was a it was a good lesson learned so you, so you, the, the, from a competitive point of view motocross to Ford Fiesta XR two eyes is that right that was your your yeah I did motocross for about four years I got to yeah. uh, sort of top amateur level and then I got to a point where I wasn't good enough I I don't think um, yeah. and I could keep up with the quick boys for a period and then you have accidents on bikes don't you and I kept on having accident after accident so Dad got me into a car yeah um, he knew Jeff Goodliffe and we've um, the Harrison brothers who were running a Fiesta at the time and. Um, really just to get me away from the bikes because right. mum was going headless um, <laughs> and uh, I'd spent a, a bit of a while in hospital in and out of hospital with one thing or another and then I don't think it was a plan to go anywhere or lead anywhere it just one thing's led to another over the years isn't it yeah definitely I was under pressure from your mother <laughs> he forgets to mention he broke his leg quite badly yeah, on one motocross event right. and right. put him out of it for the rest of that year yeah and then Mother thought that would teach him a lesson. He wouldn't go back. But, you know, secretly he was saving his pennies and uh, he managed to find enough money to buy another bike in the winter. Right. And he went off testing and uh, he got a vertical climb he was on and the bike came back over the top of him and he compressed his spine. That's How tall were you before you compressed your spine? <laughs> <laughs> it's not like the Japanese astronaut, you know. <laughs> Goodness, but but so but it's interesting that you you ref, you didn't give up. You know, you you had 
after you broke your leg, you were like, I'm still going to save, I'm still going to do this. What was the I was still on walking got? sticks at the time. Really? Yeah. And I just sort of climbed onto the bike. It didn't really sort of go to plan, but no, I'm, I'm a great one for, you know, we all got phobias. Like I don't, as yeah. madly with my height, I don't like heights. Um, but I'm all, I'm, I'm a great one for facing your fears. Yeah, sure. And a few years ago, they, uh, we got the call, um, Tatey, who was uh, our PR guy at the time, we used to have adjoining offices with a door in the middle. I can remember someone was on to do a promotion to um, do a wing walk. And I, you know, I, I hate flying. I, I, flying I'll do from get to A to B, but I don't like it and mm. I don't like heights. Mm. And so my, when I heard this being talked about, I just leant back through the door and I said, you can tell them to go. <laughs> I ain't doing that. And then I heard Plato's already agreed to it. <laughs> oh, I've got to do it so I did it and it was really I'm glad I've done it I wouldn't do it again but it's right. facing your fears job isn't it and I'm, I'm a great one for you've got to you've got to do something to get it out of your system yeah. it doesn't always work but that's what I believe in because um, was your height I mean what are you 6'5", six, 6'6"? Six, six? yeah um, was that actually a, an issue on a motocross bike I mean was, that, was, was it a because a lot of a lot of scramble riders motocross riders are sort of like jockeys uh, yeah, but then you look at Dave Thorpe, who's six foot five, multiple yeah. world champion, yeah. Yeah. and you know he's in, well into his fifties now, and he's still ultra quick, super strong. But um, probably you're right. I wasn't the ideal size, and I didn't bounce very well. You know, when mm. I came off, I used to sort of crumple when I hit stakes <laughs> and things. So yeah, that didn't go well. So so what would the 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 Matt Neal of today tell the Matt Neal of? when you made your car racing debut what what would you if you could lean in the cockpit and say listen son this is what i've learned what would you what would you say uh if you get a test always go first when the car's fresh okay so um and whatever they tell you it's it's bull it's all about <laughs> how about smoothness about lines about looking after your tires it's all about the stopwatch because we've been told many things over the years and it's all about who's the quickest yeah, that's what it's about. Have, have Have you been much of a racing dad with Matt, Steve? I mean, have you have you or have you just let him sort of get on and learn? I mean, have you have you have you offered advice willingly? Or he shouted at me a lot, <laughs> <laughs> as I've now tried to do with mine as well. I thought on the uh, the sort of plotting and scheming side, really, that's where my strength's been, and uh, and also helping him out financially because you know if you want to progress, you've got to find more money and. And, uh, and you've got to either have a lot of enthusiasm and a successful business behind you. So I've got my eyes on that and eyes on him. And uh, yeah. gradually we made it forward. You know, the transition from the Fiestas was quite a big transition to go. Yeah. And I walked into Nick Wales' uh, BMW dealership and ordered three M3 BMWs. Yeah. And an M5. He thought it was his birthday. Bet, yeah. <laughs> Biggest <laughs> M-series buyer in his showroom. Yeah. To, to convert to race cars at that point. That yeah, Because, yeah. of course, that's how, it, that's how it worked, wasn't it? You'd go to a dealer, you'd buy the road car, and then the conversion yeah. would take place. Yeah, that really was a, a bit of a misguided thing to do, as it turns out, because if you really got to start with a motorsport shell, which is lighter, seam-welded all over, and if you start with a production shell, you've got things which are glued together and yeah. not really uh, the same as buying a motorsport shell. Yeah. Once, we bought, once he wrote it off... The, the showroom car and yeah. we put a motor shell on it it was unstoppable from there wasn't it so this was uh 90 
93, am I right in saying, or was it early? 90. Early, yeah. 90 was, yeah, well, was the M3 debut, yeah. production saloons, okay. Yeah. So, so the jump from a front-wheel drive hatchback to a rear-wheel drive sports saloon, how, how did you take that as a driver? Did you ever feel um, overwhelmed by it, or did you, did you just feel, no, this is... Because you're an, an adaptable driver, I guess, is what I'm, I'm getting um, at. Yeah. No, I think you have to, I think in now, you have to be more specialist. Right. You have to specialise in front-wheel drive, rear-wheel drive. You do get a few, but the, the days of Jim Clark driving a Formula yeah. 1 car one weekend and a Lotus Cortina, you know, Flash has been very versatile, where he's jumped in historics, and you know, we all we all jump in and out. But to be, you know, when BTCC now is thirty two cars under a second in qualifying, yeah, it's it's, it's the blink of an eye. It's you you you've got to you can't leave any stone unturned in looking for performance. And sometimes when you're going away driving other stuff, it is a style. You know, you you do have to sort of take one chip out and put another chip in. Yeah. So when we've gone down to do Aussie V eight, a lot of the UK and European guys have struggled yeah one it's, it's very competitive down there there's some real quick guys down there but two it's it's such there's such a different beast to sort of get your head around sure i'm going to come back to that as, as well the the, the 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 aussie touring cars and jack i'm, go, I'm going to ask you to um paint a picture of a um a typical touring car race because matt matt has described this idea where you know everyone's within a sort of a tenth of a second and maybe we're used to seeing the NAS guys on NASCAR ovals cars are flashing past but touring cars is like that on tight twisty British circuits with yeah. a second between the top <laughs> well uh, for me it was in the dark because of its necessary in the old night races which as a child that was a incredible um, then you go to Brands Hatch and you've got 30 cars 30 wide going into paddock and you've got you can see why the stands are full you can you can see exactly why there's entertainment it's proper entertainment and that you don't actually get in other forms of motorsport other than maybe bsb um and you've got the familiarity with on the road as yeah. much as possible um and yeah you've got it's partisan you look in the crowd you've got mm. orange jackets you've got plato jackets you've got people booing cheering it's it's kind of a core motorsport fan isn't it yeah growing up for me it was the most one of the most important series as well mainly because of super tours and the cars were I, yeah. I do think it's one of the things that uh, btcc does very very well and bsb as well the fan engagement which you know if you go to the british grand prix you can see the cars at a distance from them but with you guys i mean you have the pit lane walkabouts the autograph sessions the photo sessions and i think i think that it's fun and it, and it pays off because you see 90 percent, 95 percent of the crowd are wearing a team jacket or a team hat or a team pullover or a team t-shirt or something and i think i think it's fantastic the way the whole thing is integrated yeah you, you do it's get the heroes it. and the villains and i'm the hero to some and i'm definitely <laughs> the villain to others so it swings what? around about i've been booed as well as cheered yeah death threats yeah they get yeah. pretty passionate about it so. yeah well it's a tribal series isn't it and i think that's that's maybe what's missing in some some other series you don't get death threats during the autograph sessions do you uh, I've, you know something I've had you know because they, they're on about social media and it's yeah. how, what a great thing it is and, but it's, it's an e it can be an evil thing as well mm. and I've had people be really evil on social media and then two weeks later they rock up oh can you sign this please I'm thinking I recognise you from somewhere <laughs> <laughs> and then, it, then the penny drops and what do you do so yeah, yeah go away <laughs> right that was, you were talking about the wheel hire race were you? no no the, the, uh, the 
the night yeah, race. late 90s, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, that was a good one because uh, you used to be able to, because they only light the, the apex of the corners. So yeah, on the yeah. straights, you could get away with all sorts <laughs> of... And um, there was one there where um, Ivan Muller was in the Vauxhall and you got uh, James Thompson and uh, Peter Cox in the Hondas. And Ivan hated Coxie, like with a passion. And he, we were coming down to the end of the straight and he gets nudged by someone, goes straight lines the, the S's and T-bones Tomo. And uh, anyway, he makes the podium afterwards. And we all, it, was, it was the days when we used to have to have a, a post-race press conference and we're all yeah. sat there and there was, there was Coxie on the podium and there was Ivan and there was, I think it was Will or someone like that. And then, and then there was me sat on the end. And they're going, oh, because they knew Ivan was good, good mates with, uh, with Tomo. And they said, oh, yeah, you hit Tomo. What's the... He said, yeah, yeah, I'm really, I'm really sorry about that. You know, but if it, if it was this... Oh, my God. <laughs> next to me, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have given a... <laughs> and then Coxie there's a, then pursues, because there's only one mic between all of us. There's a wrestling match between <laughs> the two of them as Coxie's trying to get the, the mic off him to respond. And it was... Uh, it all kicked off. It was just... Uh, all the, all the press guys <laughs> think it was Christmas. They're all writing it down. Brilliant. All right. Um, 93, we are going to jump around a little bit, but 1993. So a uh, question for, for, for you, Steve. This was, as an independent team, how much, was, how much was the decision to go into the independence class business and how much was passion? Because obviously the relationship between you and, and, and the wider business with Team Dynamics and Rimstock is, 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 is well documented. And of course, the promotion was fantastic. But the heart must have been saying, yeah, this is, this is going to be fun as well. <laughs> yes. So, yeah. Um, well, 93, 92, 93, yeah. really. Uh, I was friendly with Ray Bell, who yeah. was running a car down with Vic Lee and yep. his little operation. And um, we sent our car down to Vic in our truck for him to do some work on for us and uh, go through it and see where we're losing out. And uh, I had a phone call on uh, Sunday and it was Vic on the phone and said, uh, Steve, I hope you don't mind. He said, I borrowed your transporter to take a car over to Holland, uh, which a guy wanted to buy. And uh, it's some reason or other it's got stopped by customs coming back. And I said, yeah, okay, no problem. You should have asked, but I don't mind anyway. And it later transpired that uh, Customs had investigated this truck. And our truck was unique in that it had two hideaways underneath the floor of the truck, yeah. which were air there to take air cylinders. And these air cylinders, um, one either side, were the downfall of what he was attempting to do because uh, they searched the truck, they put the dogs in, found nothing, absolutely nothing. Then they discovered the air cylinders. Mm. So they opened the taps on the one, no problems, opened the taps on the other, and the dog does a somersault, absolutely. And uh, it was cocaine. And what he'd really? done, he thought, had done, tops of the bottles had been cut off. Yeah. And... Uh, Cocaine had been put in the lower half, 30 kilos in each bottle. And then he'd manufactured a very small brass uh, case, a pressure case, to yeah. uh, have compressed air. And so if they did crack the yeah. cages, then they wouldn't smell anything. You know, it would work. I see. Unfortunately, he hadn't calculated the length of that brass tube, which has got a point on the end that's attached to the gauges, to the length of the actual case itself. And as it screwed in, 
it popped a little Punched hole it. in the bottom of so, so oh, the air goodness. got in with the dust of the cocaine and that one particular bottle was a bit of a cock-up from seed which resulted in uh, Vic spending the next 11 years in jail. Absolutely, and that obviously was the end of, of, of his team. Well, what happened to, to the assets, to, to everything? Well, Ray Bell and I, 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 unfortunately, it was the same sort of time as I think it was a Frankfurt show or some sort, right. and I got to go, so I flew off to Frankfurt when this all blew up, and everybody thought I'd done a runner. <laughs> <laughs> Something to do with me. <laughs> so, fortunately, the, um, the customs guys had been following this truck for, well, Vic Lee and his partner, oh, right, yeah. for some three months before, and uh, they knew there was nothing to do with me or Ray yeah. Bell. Yeah. Uh, so Ray and I got together, and we did a deal with the, re the receiver mm. on everything at the Vic Lee business, and we walked out with that, owning that between right. us. We right. were, I think we were 50-50. We weren't quite 50-50 because yeah. Steve Soper had 2.5% for what it was worth. <laughs> <laughs> but it sort of gave him an interest. Sure. And, uh, and we, shall, say, a good friendship with Ray Bell helped yeah. it move it forward again. Yeah. I, I found a, a line on the archive. The Made Sport archive, yeah. Prepared earlier. Which said, uh, ideally, this was 1967 in the mm -hmm. magazine, it said, ideally Neil would like to run a two-car team on a grand scale, but they're pretty open-minded about it. It all depends on the financial side. So that was 67, so was that thir 25 years before it all, again, I guess, eventually came together for you. So there was an ambition from the early days to, to, run, a, to run a team, would you say? Yeah. At least that's what you told our journalists yeah. <laughs> in 67. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And how, how long... I mean, why did it take so long? Because there's a sort of a there's this period I'm guessing with with family where you, and you concentrated on the business. But when you came back to it, you you went full in, didn't you? It was yeah. It was, it's, um, the family was young, as you yeah. know, and um, the kids were growing up, so that kept the missus busy at home, didn't it? <laughs> and I uh, I found a way of enjoying myself with this yeah. development, and all the factory teams were two cars. Right. So I thought you've got to have two cars to have a proper team. Yeah. And um, it worked out okay, but we didn't really ever get the, the two cars together, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. I'd, I'd had a sort of checkered career. I did the Monte Carlo in 65. Yeah. Um, and then I bought that car back and um, sold it to oh, Fred Opert. People know Fred Opert. He was a car race car dealer in Florida, and nine hundred pounds I got for it, which was amazing. Right. Really, <laughs> and it just finished the yeah, the Monte. Just finished the Monte. Yeah, <laughs> and um, then I got another car, which another new one, and built that up as a group. I think it was Group N to start with, yeah. and then we moved straighter into this Group Five. Yeah. yeah, so it sort of went one way, then completely the other way. Yeah. It was, um, and this was the era, you mentioned it earlier on, of the, the eight port head, wasn't it? I mean, yeah. Just tell us how important that was to, oh, to you mini races. amazing. <laughs> yeah, the, the factory team had developed their own eight port head, which they weren't going to sell to anybody anyway. So <laughs> it was a bit pointless uh, going with them. So we, I got a, my brother had got a little Janetta. And it had got an SCA engine in. Do you remember the little one litre two? It was a Formula 2 engine, wasn't it? Right. And uh, it was a cracking little engine, that was. Yeah. And I looked at that, and I, we had it in bits, and the head looked perfect. 
So I took this over to Jim Whitehouse at Arden, and I said, can you build a mini-engine with a head like that on it? And he says, you can do anything if you've got the money. So, <laughs> so as my credit was reasonably good at the time, <laughs> didn't last long, uh, we proceeded on that line. And right. a lot of heartache and trouble, we couldn't get the Lucas injection, the monitoring system. Yeah. Uh, so we had to use Tecalovit Jackson, which was a sort of variation on some commercial one they got. Yeah. All those little things that went wrong and didn't work out, but then yeah. they did in the end, you know, it came good. Yeah. Yeah. And um, in 60, end of 67, beginning of 68, I was offered a drive at Cooper Car Company. By this time, I'd spent out on what I was going to do, and the budget had run out. I'd, I'd run off in another tangent as well. I had an aluminium-bodied mini-made right. body shell by a local hearse manufacturer. Really? <laughs> and it was 100 mil longer on the bonnet, so that was all so I could get a, a cross-flow get head. Get the head on it. <laughs> Don't ask me. Really Becoming a special a now. Commercial suicide, <laughs> that was. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I started off with Coopers. And, yeah. uh, that's when Gordon Spice moved into my seat at yes. Arden, and then he joined us at Coopers in 69. Yeah, uh, we didn't always get on okay. We had a few differences. <laughs> he ended up on his roof at Club Corner one day, which <laughs> <laughs> by, by on, on his own was this, or <laughs> was Strange, there some assistance? Yeah. <laughs> and his wife Bird, Bird, he called her Bird Spice. Bird, she um, she had a quite a vocabulary that was really good for sort of in the navy. She used to swear at me something rotten. <laughs> It was an interesting relationship. Good times. I'm, uh, there's, there's a bit of a segue here um, to the early 90s and Matt and um, the Mazda ZDOS that, that you drove. Now, this wasn't, was, was this part of, the, part of the family team or was this a separate um, team that you drove, drove for with the Mazda? Was this? Yeah, that was Roger Dowson Engineering. That was, and, and the engine in that, was, the, was it a little V6 in, in that car, two litre V6? Um, now, this is probably a lesser-known part of, of, of your career, but I'd like to know, how was that car? How was the engine, 2-litre V6? Um, and then, of course, you, you had your accident. Um, so maybe you can tell us about that, that period of your, your career. Uh, the, the, you have to understand it was a tyre war then. It was Michelin yeah. v Dunlop, v Pirelli, v Yokohama. And Yokohama had been the weapon of choice in the early 90s. Um, and then they'd slip back. Um, Mazda had a big thing with Yokohama. Michelin and Dunlop became the tyres to be on, which most of the factory cars would, would be on. They were factory Mazda cars we were in. Um, Yokohama had done a works deal with Toyota, with Tom's team. Okay, yeah. Uh, yeah. Which was uh, Bailey and Wilhoy, Julian Bailey and Wilhoy then. Uh, and... <clears throat> They got their arm twisted behind their back to support the Mazda outfit, which they didn't want to do. So we were, we were struggling a bit, so that made the car hard work, just because the tyres underneath you. Um, the accident came round. We were down just on the Silverstone National Circuit, yeah. and David Leslie, my teammate, and uh, I were, were battling with one of the independents, Chris Goodwin, in a, in a, in a Vauxhall. David was good at a bit of door handling and so they were going up the straight door handling and <clears throat> I got a bit of, because they were busy, I got a bit of a run on them out of 
turn one cops. Yeah. Um, of which Chris Goodwin sort of gets a, a good door handle off David, starts to lose it, fishtail, starts fishtailing on the straight, and as I'm coming past on the inside, he just clips my rear bumper. And then that just flicks. It should have been a spin, but it doesn't. It mm. just We had no air on the cars back then, right. no wings, and it just flicks it and into a multiple of barrel rolls, which um, seemed to go on forever. Did you see it coming? Because I watched it again yesterday, and it looks like the two cars are just arrowing in onto you and then almost as if you can you can see it ha- like in hindsight you can see it happening the fact that you're about to get I thought I'd give them loads of space on the outside mm. I was I was I was over on the inside and I thought well, I'm through and then then he clipped me and I thought well that's not going to do anything and then it goes over and I'm more annoyed about it going over to start with and then it's like it was like being in a tumble dryer it was just it was, I thought it's got to stop at some point and then I ended up down in halfway between maggots and, and Beckett's then um facing the oncoming traffic but with the front of the car just like a ski ramp because it's all battered in so then facing they didn't red flag the race for about I don't know two or three laps mm. and you're worried about because you're coming around maggots blind um, someone just coming straight up the front of the car because I was conscious still Yeah. so the, the very next time I drove on the Silverstone National Circuit was when I was trying to win my championship in 06 and we went there at the last last race of 06 and that's the first time I'd driven that circuit again um, and I didn't even register. It, you know, you're on about yeah. re- things register and anything. Mm. Didn't even register. Someone only told me, reminded me about it afterwards, and I went, "Oh yeah, right, okay." Last time I here was Mazda. So you were you were you were conscious, um, but you you'd man- you damaged your ribs. Is that right? Yeah, there, yeah. And to this day, is there, do you still have any any problems with with your ribs? I get a jab at them every now and then. There's there's no fallout from that one, so that was okay. That's good. Okay. Right. Let's move on to. Should we go to 95 then? Um, So this was the first year that you won the Independence Cup? Yeah. (laughs) 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 A long time ago. We were looking for a car to race with, and Mm. we came upon a. Ford Mondeo, which was owned by Ford France. And uh, some of the lads went over, had a look at it, said it was good. And we did a deal with them and brought the car back to the UK, took it apart, put it all back together again, as you do. And uh, that was the start of our relationship with Ford. Uh, It was a genuine Rouse car, you know, because he made quite a few of those. And... um, it was properly done, as Andy always did, but yeah. it was done with budgeted mind. Andy was always very careful with uh, spending his money. Yes. So one or two of the things <laughs> perhaps he didn't know about, but being a metallurgist, he, he used secondary metal to cast his uprights, and uh, that caused us problems because they'd fall in half. Right, right. But uh, apart from that, it was a great car, wasn't it? it was, I think one of the... One of the yeah, it was a great car. It was very, it was basic, but it worked. It was practical engineering, which Andy was always very good at. Um, one of the aces up our sleeve that year is we moved to Dunlop. Right. We did a deal with Dunlop, and um, Dunlop. It was, it was, it was when tyres were free. You could use as many tyres as you wanted. So we were all using qualifiers as well, and Dunlop had the best qualifier. And Dunlop were only on um, uh, Volvo at that point. Yeah. All the other factory teams were on Michelin. Yeah. So Dunlop used us as a bit of a, a, a pointy stick to sort of poke some of the other factory teams, especially the the uh, 
Yeah, the the Rouse Michelin shod cars. Yeah. So because um, we could have the, I mean those those Dunlop qualifiers back then were just amazing <laughs> to drive on, absolutely <laughs> amazing, and um, yeah, that gave us some great results in the year, didn't it? Oh yeah, yeah. It's, uh, funny you mentioned that Dunlop qualifier. This mm. is how uh, James Thompson came to fame because okay. uh, he would keep the qualifiers on for the race. Right. So he'd last about five or six laps and drive his way all through the field and he'd be up there leading the race and then finally they had to retire because there were no tyres left on it. Right. But it really did focus the factory teams on this young kid. Right, right. It, well, I think it was Strategic. a big yeah. plot, wasn't it, that was? Yeah. What's it, what's it like driving sticky collies on a, on a touring car then? Do you, do you have one lap? Do you? What's the preparation Depends involved? Depends on the in, circuit, you know, yeah. the layout of the circuit and everything. At Thruxton, which is particularly hard on tyres, you had one lap and yeah. you had to go so slowly on your out lap. Then just before the chicane, the last corner, you just, you'd hammer it. Uh, and then arriving at that last corner, at the end of the first lap, it was 50-50 whether your tyres were going to be in. Amazing. So do you, but they are just, um, I would say to drive a, you know, you put a fresh set of boots on now. Yeah. You have to drive beyond what you think the car's capable of because fresh set of tyres, you always get that little bit of extra grip and you sort of have to anticipate that. With qualifiers, it goes to another level because you just your, your brain's saying this thing's ain't going to stick and it's just un, un, unreal. Well, was, yeah. the, was the bump still at church at Thruxton back Oh, then? it was a big bump at church yeah, then, yeah. yeah. It, was, it was a good bump. Well, yeah, I imagine that would be quite entertaining on qualies. Yeah, it's, I mean, uh, we ju you just hung on and the thing would, it was like ground effects on the cars. They was, it was fantastic things to drive. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. It dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Let's, let's talk about the evolution of the touring car during this, this period. So between, you know, 95 and for the next five, six years or so, the cars turned into prototypes effectively, didn't they? And, 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 and your team um, with the Primera had one of the very best out there. So from a driver's perspective, what, what was the car? How would you compare a 95 car and a 2000 car to drive? Uh, I don't think you could really. They were very different. Don't forget, when we started back in um, 92, 93, you had no data logging. You had nothing. You had, sure, you had yeah. a, just a taco, a temperature gauge and everything. And they, yeah. 
anyway, the engineer knew if you'd over-revved it, it was because your belts were loose when you came in, because on the slowing down lap, you'd, you'd lent forward, <laughs> sort of repress the, the telltale lever. It's all coming um, out now. I mean, it's completely different to what it is now, uh, yeah. or how it ended up. You know, now, they, you know, if, if uh, a young driver comes in and he's, he's half a second off the pace, they go, oh, right, it's here, here, and here. Just go out and do it again. Yeah. And it's monkey see, monkey do. It can be now when, back then, it was, in Dad's day, it's if you're off the pace go on yeah what are you going to do about it you've got to work it out and figure it out with your engineer and yeah and how you're going to do it yourself so it it went through a massive transition they were great i mean we all look on on back on the super touring days with fondness i think we all do but it was incredibly unfair uh the way it was set up you know in 90 in 94 there was only an alpha going to win with the wings and everything so it was in between tarquini and simone 95 um, oh, I can't remember who uh, was it. The Audis, no, yeah, the, with Beeler. Was that ninety six was Beeler. Yeah, yeah. That was the only thing that was going to win. Ninety yeah. no ninety five. It was Beeler. Ninety six. Yeah. It was only going to be a Renault winning. Yeah. So it was between Menu and Plato. Ninety seven. It was um, Ricard. It was only going to be a Vol. You know, ninety nine. It was only ever going to be a Nissan winning. And that was correlated to the so money. Now you compare it to now, and yeah. that was with engines, with tires, with everything. Mm. The first. You'll remember this. The first race, British touring car race, we ever ran as an independent with the same tyres as the factory teams, we won. Donington. That was the yeah. first time they ever allowed us the same tyres as the factory cars. And um, you compare that to now, it's such a level playing field mm. and the quick cars and the factory cars and the quick guys have weight in them. So they're actually disadvantaged instead of advantaged. Yeah. So now it's, it's completely, you can come in at any level and you can, there's no... No reason why you can't fight for the championship. Yeah. When back then it was impossible. You couldn't yeah. do it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, this I is think something <coughs> I'd like to mention here that it, uh, went on in the early days of super touring. There was a minimum driver weight of 80 kilos. And all the drivers were under 80 kilos, except mm. for Matt, who was 100 kilos. And I tried. Lardy was, Lardy was pretty tubby as well, wasn't yeah, he? So he, well, Lardy was a bit. Tim Harvey. Yeah, but he wasn't as bad as he is now. <laughs> the, the buffet slayer. That's, that's his social handle, isn't it? The buffet slayer. Sorry. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah, so um, I tried and tried with teams meetings and what have you with Gal to mm. get the regulations changed so that they would accommodate uh, the 80 kilos by taking 20 kilos of ballast out of the cars. Mm. Uh, they wouldn't have it. The teams agreed with me when I face-to-face them. But as soon as they got in en masse, they were a 99% against me. You know, I didn't have mm. a chance. Yeah. So everybody with an extra 20 kilos in would have made a heck of a difference to Matt's career because as it was, he was quick enough yeah. to win races. So without the weight in, he would have been substantially faster. Yeah. I think that that period was 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 really important for um for both of your reputations because your team became um the most popular team in the paddock didn't it and i think it was the independent spirit it was the fact that the crowd were as a british crowd is very knowledgeable they knew that that you were up against it but also you took advantage of that i think the way you engaged with the crowd at that time was was unbelievable and you've you've kept the same approach haven't you from from that that day <laughs> forward you know you've always been a very open kind of yeah uh, we operation. had a few uh, antis we had a sort of running battle with jenny birrell who was the uh, 
what do you call her, the administrator or something? Gestapo, totally Gestapo. She was the Rudolph Hessen. <laughs> she obviously didn't like us very much, and right. uh, nor did she like Rob Collard, because Rob and ourselves were always put down on the somewhere in the other wet paddock. You know, we were actually parked on top of the sewage pit at one time, <laughs> where she'd put us. Yeah, Adrian Watson used to try and look, look after us and help us, but yeah. uh, she didn't go too far and tread on Jenny's toes. So. So from the inside, there was there was maybe some battles, but from from the outside looking in, I mean, you you became. I found some pictures last night, the the huge crowds that we had at Silverstone and Brands. The it's the iconic British the, underdog, isn't it? And yeah. Who's got a chance? Like one of the drivers who I always remember is Nigel Mansell. You know, you, you love him or hate him, and he he was the iconic underdog who would fight every step of the way. Mm. And you know, in touring cars, I'd seen drivers like Steve Soper. Where you just—he was a fighter, and that's yeah. what—that's what I liked. And we used to say, "Should we go for independent wins or or race wins or whatever?" And it was, "No, no, let's see how far we can get up there. We want to, we want to, we want to." You know, they say you aim for the stars. If you miss, you might hit the moon. So yeah. you, you still get somewhere. Okay, right. This is where I do a, a segue into um, a promotion. This is a Mercedes-Benz promotion, chaps. Um, this one is to enjoy the G-Class Ultimate Four by Four experience. Who's who's done some off-roading here? Come on. Intentionally? Have you done off-road um, or was it? Uh, Andrew, Andrew English from the Daily Telegraph and I got a G-Class stuck in a ditch in Surrey once, which was his fault. Okay. So what you needed was this experience? Yes, well, yeah, arguably, yes. I found a few gravel traps in my time, so count me in. Okay, and, and you've done the Monty. So, so we have <laughs> a pretty good, pretty good experience in the room. Well, this is, um, this is to start the year off with an unforgettable experience. Um, Please call 0370 400 4000 and quote G-Class Ultimate 4x4. Um, the expiry date is one year from the date of per purchase and terms apply. Um, please also visit the Mercedes-Benz World website for more details. So, sounds like fun to me. So, Nigel Mansell, I'm not, I'm not going to let that one drop. So, you, you had the opportunity to race a hero and also from this part of the world... So we're we're in the Midlands. Nigel Mansell, a huge hero. I don't know about you. I'd, I'd have been just. I'd have been like, no, you do what you want to do, Nigel. I can't can't bring myself to race you. That's <laughs> you're too much of a hero, surely. <laughs> what was it like? Come on. Uh, very very <laughs> surreal because you'd look you'd looked at him and admired him, and he'd been the. But I suppose it's the same way as you know. I get young drivers now coming in, but all they want to do is a piece of you. Because <laughs> yeah, they just, you know, he's a, you're a great scalp, aren't you? Like Nigel was a great scalp for us all to have a have a race with, and if you could if you could beat him potentially, yeah. um, even better. Yeah. And what was he like out on track? Um, he was a trier. You know, he, I think he was uh, thrown in the deep end to start with. He had a big accident at yeah. the the Toka shootout, put him in the bridge, but he came back. And to be fair to him, he got his head around it. Mm. He might have struggled a wee bit in the drive, but when he got in the wet conditions, you know, and he, he's just, uh, he came to the fore and he was going to win. He, I, you know, he could have won the race back yeah. then, but um, it wasn't for John Clennon sorting him out. No, Tiff put him in the bridge. Yeah. That was another one. <laughs> <laughs> he still hasn't been giving him for that. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Simon, tell us about this time <coughs> when Nigel came into touring car racing. You know, this is this is a world champion, and he'd been to Indy cars, and he came to the British Touring Car Championship. I mean, it's a measure of the championship itself, but also a measure of Nigel that he would throw himself in. Yeah, I mean, I I do remember 
I mean, I wasn't uh, attending many touring car races at that time. I was busy with other things, but I, I do. Uh, I remember the fantastic response. I mean, just working on a weekly newspaper at the time on Motoring News, as it was called then, and um, you know, I, just one of those real buzz front page headlines that week that it that it you know just it caused such a, a you know I think we all we all knew it was coming, but it's because um, the rumours had been rumour mill been over in overdrive. When it's actually happened, yeah, it was, it was, a, it was just a fantastic thing for. I mean, the, the equivalent nowadays would be Lewis Hamilton turning up at the British Touring yeah. Car Championship in a year or three. Absolutely. Um, which I don't <clears throat> quite. Fernando Alonso can see it happening. I'm not <clears throat> so sure about Lewis. Not, but, not um, for Lewis, yeah. But uh, I mean, th- th- that's, the, that's the scale of the impact it had at the time. Yeah. And I do very clearly remember, I think, driving to work the morning after Tiffgate when, um, <laughs> when the. the, the, the <laughs> I hadn't been at Donington and... Um, Tiff still says it's his claim to fame. Yeah, well, absolutely, yeah. I know he does. And um, still denies that he had any part to play in it. Yeah. Um, but the, I just remember switching the radio on on the way into the office, probably for press day, and uh, the first thing I heard was Nigel Mansell Hospital. I thought, he's driving Ford Mondeo around Donington Park, how? <laughs> yeah, that, but yes, and then, then you saw the footage and... Uh, it, it That's Nigel, is. isn't it? He either wins yeah. or he goes he down in flames. <laughs> it's, yeah, just, yeah. It's, it's just poetry. Yeah, yeah. Jack, he was going to jump in. No, no, all right, okay. Make a gag. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so let's talk about the two hundred and fifty thousand pounds. I know it was a long time ago, um, but I didn't. I didn't get any of it. I was at every race for two years, Matt. We sent the check. Did did you? Yeah, you you sent the check to a lot of people. (laughs) So Graham Steed had your share, I think. Did he? Yeah. Damn him. Yeah, he he flew to Scotland soon after. Bought a nice house. yeah, so so that what what did that mean for the team? I mean, symbolically, I mean, it was a lot of money, but symbolically, that that race, what what did it mean for 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 you guys and for the right. team? It was euphoria, really. You've got to yeah. say that, um, especially after that pit stop, Jeepers oh, Creepers. Yes. Yeah, that was, was unbelievable. Really, he got the race in the bag. He got the weight of everybody. A, s- a simple, straightforward pit stop, changed the tyres, and uh, no problems. Mm. And um, then he stalled. <laughs> Couldn't what believe happened, it. What happened, Matt? And uh, I don't I know, know what went through his mind. <laughs> Fortunately, he had enough gumption to get it going again yeah. and uh, went out lying fourth or fifth, was it? Yeah, which was which was lucky because the nat- mm. Nissans back then were n- notoriously hard to start when they were hot. Yeah. So, fortunately, I hit the, hit the fire button and it So we hit the ultimate low. Yeah. Yeah, and then we had the big comeback drive through the field and... Uh, the ultimate win, which meant more because of how it was achieved, with being there, then not there, then creeping away. Can he make it? Can he make it? Yeah. Yes, he can. Looks good. You know, yeah, amazing. There's a, the, the cars in inside are incredible. You know, you've got to go. In yours, incredibly yeah. noisy, and so there's only twice I've ever heard the crowd cheering from a roar of the crowd from inside the car. One was Mansell at the Turkish shootout in '93. And the other one was when we took the lead uh, in 99 for that win. So down the crane of curves. So you, you could hear the crowd from in the car. It was amazing. And the crowd are a long way from the track at Craner as well, aren't they? I mean, you exit the first corner, but then that's just remarkable. And, and, and also it's very open there. It's not exactly an echo chamber. I think it's, I mean, it's a very, very wide open bit of land. With, yeah. It's, uh, yeah, it's quite amazing. Do you get goosebumps there when you think about that? Yeah, you do. You know, and yeah. I, I joke apart, I still get people t- today or, you know, this week or Autosports show in January and they mm. still come to you. I was there. Yeah. I was there. I watched that or I saw that and I was maybe if anyone been that big or that big <laughs> or whatever, but yeah. I was there and I remember. 
right. Um, at this time, um, well, actually, no, let's talk about some of the other the cars that you, you've driven um, around the late 90s as well. So you, so you mentioned earlier on going to Bathurst and, and driving the, um, the, the Australian supercars. But there was also a run in a GT1 Porsche, wasn't there, at, at Silverstone, the, um, which was... Well, I can't believe you got in the car in the first place, <coughs> but you scored a third place, didn't you, in the British GT round, is that right? Mm. So how did that come about? How uh, did it come about? I can't remember, actually. <laughs> 98, I remember it was 98. Yeah, it seemed a good idea at the time, as I can understand. We had to uh, borrow the car. So you borrowed the car, yeah. Um, what was his name, the Swedish guy? Yeah, I, I, I can't. I'd like to have that car now. It'd be worth a few pounds. Yeah, it be. Do you know, it, it sold it only a couple of months ago. Really? In January, yeah, it came up for sale. I mean, it went around the world, that car. I went to the States. and I remember sat in the, because what it had done is it had been raining, um, and it was wet. And this lot had the bright idea. They went, no, nah, no, nah, it's going to dry. It's out there. And I'm, I'm, I've never driven, raced this thing before. And I'm, and I'm cooped up in there. And then it's not slow piece of kit. And I'm sort of looking down at everyone's. <laughs> I said, and they put me on slicks. I said, how come everybody on the grid is on wet? <laughs> <laughs> I can't see much, but I can see that. <laughs> but in fact, it was the demon called because the, yeah. the car had got ABS. It was one of the, the Porsche was oh, the yeah. only thing with ABS at that point. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, we came through the field, so it was it was a it was a good was call. A good result. Did did it make you think? Oh, I'm going to have a go at sports cars, or was it just just some fun? It was a, an opportunity that came up, and you thought, well, it's, it's good marketing. You know something? Mm. Uh, you it was a the, the mega those GT1 Porsches. You know, mm. being at Le Mans and everything. We compared the data of it, and the Nissan Primera of '99 mm. uh, was faster through the corners no. than the ground effect. GT1 Porsche. That shows you the level that the super touring era got to. Yeah. So, and they were on little eight inch, you know, the tyres were double the width on the Porsche, never mind all the diffusers and the wings and all the rest of it. So yeah. it just shows you the level the touring cars got to at that point. Yeah. The, it was a different style. I, uh, I've always enjoyed, it was a very much pointed and squirt, get through the corner, pointed and just whoosh, you're off up the, up the thing. Mm. I've always enjoyed touring cars because it was, it's more the combat side, it's me v you, right. you know, your car might not be as good as mine, but you can outwit me and you can do this or do that. And it's, you've got to watch your back as much as watching your front when GT racing is a bit more purist, you know, behave yourself stuff, isn't it? <laughs> so well, let's talk about not behaving yourself in uh, Australia. Tell us about your, your, the fun you had in Australia. Because you drove the Primera in Australia, but then you've also driven supercars as well, haven't you? So <clears throat> Yeah, the first year we got to Australia, the... Um, the the crowds are amazing down there. It was obviously the f when we went down there with the Nissan. It was um, it was pre V eights, yeah. so that you hadn't got the real part as tribal crowds. But they'd um, there's a lot of police presence down there at the bottom of the mountain, and the local Hell's Angels ch chapter policing the top of the mountain because the police wouldn't go up there because there used to be a police station there and it got burnt down the year before by the fans. <laughs> and um, <laughs> do you get that open part? Is that so it was actually, was a, there was a motorbike crowd that burned down the Gents Lose in about 1977. So it has happened. There is, there, there, yeah, there is, there is previous. I didn't oh. have a very good run in the V8s. And then I went yeah. back there for a couple of times. And the last time I was there, my teammate was um, Boris Sed. Yeah. Um, lovely guy, great guy um, from the States. And um, they said, look, um, there was uh, Paul Morris and Russell Ingle in the, in the sister car. And they said, if any of the cars, if one car's out of it and the other car has, runs into a problem... What we'll do is we'll call a code red. It means you've got to put it in the gravel or just park it somewhere. So they call a safety car. It means we can get back, make a pit stop, and get out quick. Right. 
And we'd gone, a, we'd had a bit of an engine problem, so we'd gone a lap down early on, so we were, we were pretty much out of it. And then uh, Russell was in, um, Russell was in uh, the other car, and they they had a bit of a problem. So Paul Morris comes up to me, goes, "Oh, mate," he says, "Yeah, we're gonna have to do this code red thing because you couldn't call it over the radio, otherwise you." you he said, "We've got to call a code red." Anyway, at this point, Boris is in the car. I went, "Yeah, yeah, get on, get him." He says, "Because they said what are you gonna do? He's got to chuck it in the gravel." I said, "Yeah, yeah, tell Boris to crack on. He's gonna look at it. Yet it's no problem with me. We're out of the race anyway." No, no, no. We're going to come in for the pit stop and you've got to go and do it on the first lap. I went, oh man, <laughs> you're joking. Because yeah. with the V8s, because it was, you know, the Ford v Holden. Mm. When I first went there, I was always with Holdens. And they said, if you go off in front of a, the Ford fans, don't get out of the car. Because they'll just throw beer cans, rocks. And if they, if they understand you're a pom, then they'll really kick off. So <laughs> then I'm going around and the V8s are not a slow thing to go around in. Yeah. Um, and I'm trying to pick a gravel trap to go off in. <laughs> <coughs> looking for the fans that, which are there and looking where it's not going to damage the car too much. And in the end, I decided that Into the Chase was the safest place because it was far away from everyone. And I had to do it there. So it was code red, yeah. I'm presuming that has only happened once in your career. Yeah, that, once in my career. Pick a gravel trap. Yeah, yeah incredible. Um, okay, I'm, I'm going to go to uh, the Honda relationship now, which, which started in 2003. Um, and is it 10 years that you've had, uh, uh, that you've effectively been driving Hondas? Because you had a break as well. You drove for Vauxhall for a couple of years, yep. didn't you? So um, tell me about your relationship with, with Honda. And, you know, you, you've, 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 stayed, <laughs> you've stayed on track with Honda. You've had some real success with them. What's, what works? What's, what is the, the sort of the dynamic between, between you and, and, and Honda? And obviously from a marketing, marketing perspective, they've done extremely well. But it just works, doesn't it? You're, you're, you feel like it feels like you're a Honda man now. <laughs> yeah, I think um, what works. We d we've delivered results. That's yeah. what works, isn't it? Basically, um, unfortunately, we, we missed out on the on the big the big times uh, where they poured or all the manufacturers poured multi millions yeah. into it. Yeah. Now, like a lot of the manufacturers, they everything's on a on a sh on a shoe not shoestring, but on a much tighter rein. Yeah. Um, why has it continued? Because we've delivered results, and we've now got Honda up to be the, mo the second most successful manufacturer of all time in British touring car history. So Is it really? That's, um, yeah, over all of them. There's only Ford, Behind Ford who's been right. going um, forever yeah. since its inception that, um, yeah, Honda's next, next best now. Yeah. Okay, so um, let's, let's talk about um, this, this year. Let's talk about 2018. Um, this, again, if my notes are correct, you made your debut in 1988. Is this your 30th year of competition? Sorry about that. That would be four-wheel competition, yeah. Four-wheel competition, yeah. I did yeah. two-wheel before that. Yeah, so so 30th year for four wheels. Uh, and you're, do, you, do you feel as quick as you've ever felt? Do you feel as competitive as you've, you've ever felt? And then I'll ask your dad if, if he thinks <laughs> People say you enjoy it. I mean, you mentioned having fun doing British touring cars. I wouldn't say it's fun to drive them. I wouldn't say it's fun to be involved. I wouldn't say it's fun to run cars or anything. It's It's all about the... Uh, the challenge and the competition hmm. uh, and achievement. Um, you know, you still fight like hell to do it. As as a driver, would I? Um, it's a different thing for me now. Uh, do I enjoy just driving fast? No. Um, I yes, you do. You get a buzz out of it. Um, but the fun factor is now the what you get off on is the results. Hmm. Doing it as a team, you yeah. know, achieving and and getting something. We're we're doing a new car now with the FK8. Yeah, 
yeah. which is very exciting. Um, and it's the it's the mountain you've got to climb to get that thing on the pace. And I think we, we you know we with the guy we got some pretty clever guys at Dynamics and yeah. and Neil Brown Engineering and, yeah. and back at Honda and it's the achievement of doing it all together, doing it as a team, still doing it with Dad and yeah. um, you know trying to get a winner out of it. Yeah. How is the how do you think? Um, I mean, Gordon Shedden announced uh, that he was leaving the team after a long long run with you. I mean, you guys. You've had a couple of scrapes on track, but it seems generally the time you've been together, you've been very effective as a pair. You've had a really good, strong bond as as a team. I mean, how is his moving on to fresh pastures going to affect things? I think it, it will affect us. Um, you know, you've got to try and bring positives out of out of whatever happens, and um, <clears throat> it's a great opportunity for him. It's a life changing opportunity to go and do the world championship. So good on him. We're still good friends. You know, I'm going to get a bedroom back at my house because he used to live down here enough. <laughs> He's going to get a bill for the last six years' rent because I yeah. think he can afford it now. <laughs> He's earning. Um, it is going to be different. It's going to put a different dynamic into the team. But, you know, if we bring anyone new in, we're going to make them sing off the same hymn sheet. You know, it's, Flash was blindingly fast. And no matter what you put him in, whether you put him in a GT2 Ferrari, which they did at Spa, I've never seen the circuit or the car before, whether they put him in a historic car, anything, you know, a touring car, it's, he proves his metal. He, the reason he got his, you know, got the, the drive, he got a drive in Dubai, never seen the car before, never seen the circuit before, puts it on pole. pole. Yeah. So it's, you know, the rest speaks for itself, really. I mean, what, what, was the, what was the secret of the, kind of the, the strength of the relationship between you? Because I, said, I'm, I remember there was a race at Alton where you took each other, I can't remember if his fault or your fault, at Lodge on the last lap. Um, but I mean, you always, despite little things like that, you always seem to, you know, bounce back and it didn't seem to have any... Yeah, I guess most of the secret, he did what I told him. And you gave him a rent-free well, bedroom. Well, he, he stopped doing what I told him when he started beating me all the time. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I'm, we're still there. I think the, the pair of us complemented each other uh, with his speed and my experience. So, um, you know, I still think I can pop in a, a quick lap, so I, I'd keep him honest. Um keep him on his toes and hopefully the next person we bring in will, will be the same. Do you think you were talking about Flash's versatility that touring car drivers get an unfair um, rap almost. They're not, they're not considered among the top more versatile drivers when actually they are more. I, I, I agree with you 100% because when we started racing at Goodwood um, down there, I felt, you know, working uh, Touring cars, I think people, you know, in the motorsport world look on as more working class. And, you know, sometimes we get some GT drivers coming and we'd be sat in the, in the um, driver briefing and we'd all lean across. Well, he's a bit too posh to be here, isn't he? Because it, it's just too polite. Because the racing is brutal. It's, yeah. it's, it's rough. And um, when we go down to Goodwood, I think they look at Formula One drivers as the elite. Sports car drivers as sort of the next best. And touring car drivers, okay, they're pretty average. And it's only when we've gone down and we've raced against the sports car drivers and the things, and the touring car drivers, a lot of the time come out on top, mm. that has completely changed in the last four or five years. And now a lot of the, the good guys, they're actually pulling touring car drivers into their teams over the other guys because they, come, they get the results. Yeah. And at Goodwood, if you get a result for your car, the car goes up in value. So it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a commercial thing. Yeah. Good question, Jack. Um, 
We've answered some um, questions here from, from our readers. Brian Kemp, Ali Kay, Story, and uh, Lorraine Young all asked questions around, around Flash. Um, so we're, we're coming to the end, so I'm going to ask some reader questions, um, some brave ones in here. Should we start with a brave one? Yeah. Okay. If the opportunity, this is from Dan Wainwright, if the opportunity came again, would you punch Plato in the nose again, and do you still not like each other to that same degree? Who's that to my dad? <laughs> <laughs> Have you punched him as well? <laughs> Who hasn't? <laughs> you, know, you know, I've been asked that question a lot of times and people used to say, is it for the camera or is it genuine? And it was 100% genuine. You know, we weren't hammering it up for the camera, but we, I remember that particular time at Rockingham, we got frog marched straight past the clerk of the course office, straight to the stewards, and they're, you know, they're giving us a proper rap. Mm. And, you know, you can have a big fine, you're a disgrace, people are looking up to you and this and this, and we're sort of walking out, um, feeling a bit lighter in the pocket and, and with a tail between our legs. And about 100 metres from the, uh, the steward's office are the ITV guys rushing up to us, lads, that was brilliant, can you do it again next round? And everything, can you go, well, hang on a minute, how come you can go and pay the fine? So there's a mixed message, which is the same with the racing. You know, you get, we all get chastised for being hooligans, but the problem is, is that it puts bums on seats. So they try and, you know, p people want to see Agra. I remember going as a kid saying, oh, it was a great crash at, at, um, at Island Bend or something at Alton Park. Or people want to see that. Um, but you, you don't want to damage your car or anything. But it's, it's a fine line, the, the people who are running it and, and putting the judicial procedures mm. in place that have to walk with it. Yeah. It would have damaged your hand, wouldn't you? He had his helmet on still, didn't he? Yeah, I'd, my, my, <laughs> I had damaged my hand anyway, so I wasn't going to punch him. <laughs> it's just it's great the way he flinched, wasn't it? <laughs> Big girl. So I'm presuming that Nick Mitchell has asked, um, have you ever The same had question. It's <laughs> basically two pages. Yeah. Now, this is only the second Plato one. Have you had discussions with Jason Plato about driving for the team? Yeah, we have. On numerous occasions, haven't we? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So it's not all bad about Jason. Yeah. You were teammates, weren't you? Uh, for one race, yeah, yeah. NASCAR. Who won? Uh, I think I put the faster. I was faster. Uh, he won the race. <laughs> <laughs> he won the race. No, he finished in front of me in the race. Right. Yeah, but you so. were faster. That, that was when Je Jeff Goodliffe was looking after those two cars. And yeah. uh, Jason was winning everything there. And Matt got a one-off drive in it, an invitation in, and uh, I think McKay... Darren Manning, I, I sat in for Darren. Darren Manning was yeah. Jason's teammate, yeah. and he yeah. got an uh, opportunity in Champ Car. So they gave me a call-up, and um, yeah, they're different. They were very different to drive, but I managed to... He drove it the wrong way, squeak to a be honest. quick lap out of he it. He drove it off the diff, by, so using the diff to break the rear end, to oh, come okay. out, get oversteer in the car, yeah, and he shouldn't have done that. When he when he got there, well, when we all got there, the team said to him, "This car is good for a thirty-one to whatever, whatever it was. <clears throat> you know, it will not go faster than that." Yeah. Okay, fine. Matt does a twenty-nine-eight or something. Yeah, you know, and the guy, Plato's nowhere, is he? <laughs> and that's no. impossible. So Plato starts. You yeah. can imagine, can't you? Well, we all go home laughing and joking, you know, that'll teach him. But the man yeah. says, it ain't going to last more than about three laps because he got the thing so loose on the rear that he was spinning the wheels up and the tyres were going to shred oh, themselves up. Yeah. 
Anyway, uh, when we came back the next day, the car wasn't even good for a 31. It was more like a 32 because <laughs> right. all the bits off Matt's car had been put on Jason's car. <laughs> uh, Jason had more experience. He was he, he outdrove me in the race, I'll be fair. fair. Okay. Credit where credit's due. So. <laughs> so this year we have the BTCC 60 miler, double distance at, at Snetterton. Uh, Becky Kelly, um, Matt, what are your thoughts on the 60 mile race and are you looking forward to it? I'd prefer it if it was 60 laps. You know, we want to make it a proper challenge. Um, 60 miles, I think our, our standard races are 40, 50 miles, aren't they, or something? So yeah. it's going to be a bit different. You've got to probably look after your tyres a wee bit because now with the turbo engines and the torque we've got off these turbo engines, you can you can spin the things up in the first few gears so sure. very easily. So um, the Honda's historically been very good to its tyres. So I'm I'm looking forward to it. Bring it on. Yeah, brilliant. You'll be there, won't you? Yeah, local boy. And if yeah. it's at night. Yeah, sounds like, yeah, <laughs> start a bit later. So we what? Might be if we have enough safety cars. <laughs> true. Okay, we've got three more questions now. So um, Matt Stellmarker, um, favourite corner of any circuit in the world? I'll, I'll, ask, I'll ask you both. Start with Matt. Favourite corner, any circuit? Oh, man. <laughs> um, favourite corner? I'll have to think about this. Right. Go on, ask Dad first. What's your favourite corner, Steve? <laughs> the uh, the old Grand Prix circuit, Silverstone Grand Prix circuit, wood, yeah. Woodcut corner. Yeah, that was a real hang on. Alton Park had also got the um, what do they call it? Nickerbrooks days. Nickerbrooks. No, the left hander, long left hander. Oh, Ireland. Island. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You had to you had it. to take that flat to get a decent time out because it, it went on and on and on. And that took a lot of doing. That did. That yeah. took a, plucking up a lot of courage. And even when you'd done it, you didn't really want to do it again. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, quick, two quick uh, corners. Very chosen, fast there. corners, yeah. I think. Yeah. You're the same, Matt. Is it, would it be a quick corner? Um, yeah. I've, yeah. Uh, th- th- uh, you know, I'm going to be patriotic and go for a corner at a British track. Um, I can think of many corners around the world which I don't like. Um, <laughs> But for a favourite corner, it would be Hawthorne on the Grand Prix circuit at um, at Brands. Yeah. Because yeah. it's slightly cambered. You can be so brave turning into there. You could just carry more speed than the, th- the car should go through. And somehow the car gets through every time. It's an amazing amount of grip, but it's it's big commitment corner. And then it's followed by Westfield, which is completely the opposite. Adverse camera, and it's all going away from you. But, um, yeah, those pair, and that's why I think they should never... They should keep going with Brands GP. Absolutely. And uh, never change it. Okay, um, so this is going to be the last one from Nick B, and it's another, it's another if question. If you were allowed one more race, which car and track from your careers would you choose, and why? So one car, one one track. Well, people have asked me about favourite cars. Yeah, you know, the last generation Nissan Primeras were pretty special, but when we go to Goodwood and you see all the cars there, and everyone, which one would you want to want to mm-hmm. drive, and it's only when you actually go back and look at them and sit in them and you realise what buckets of bolts most of them were and how unsafe they all were. And, you know, I always say that the next car, it's the next generation. Yeah. You know, I look back at my car, I'm driving at that point, say at Goodwood, and you realise how lucky you are to be doing with all the technology we've got in now. It's amazing. I would say the next car, the next, the FK8 Civic is going to be my, uh, the one I want to choose because I reckon that's going to be a winner. Which circuit? Brands GP? Brands has always been pretty kind to me, so... Um, yeah, we'll do Brands. Brands GP, because that's the last one. We'll win it at the last one. <laughs> Here we go. 
Steve, would it be a mini? Would you would you like to relive one of your mini races, or would it be something like you know the, the Chevron that you drove? Mm. If you could go back and have another go, yeah. No, I think it'd be one of that mini races. Yeah, yeah, the one that stacks in the back of your mind was that one race in '67, I guess. Yeah. Okay, um, chaps, Matt, Steve, fantastic. Thank you very much for your your time and actually inviting us here as well to to your headquarters. It's great to see the activity that that's going on as well, preparing for the for this British touring car season ahead. So, thanks to Jack as well, and thanks to Simon and to Alan as well for making us all sound brilliant. Um, that's another fantastic motorsport magazine podcast in association with Mercedes Benz. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you at the next one. Cheers. What do you think of? When someone says the word used, old-fashioned, out of tune, a bit scratched, something past its best, chances are you're not thinking of a Mercedes-Benz, and certainly not one of the latest models. Think Mercedes-Benz approved used, suddenly there's a lot more meaning to that little word. Visit your local retailer to find your used car today, and you'll see what I mean. Mercedes-Benz approved used. Used, but not what you're used to. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.